Well, great to see you. Great to see you. Thanks so much for coming to this seminar. Just a few words of introduction if you don't know who I am and what I do. Uh, some years ago, I was just an ordinary New Frontiers pastor up in Shropshire when one of the senior leaders of New Frontiers at the time by the name of David Stroud said, could you help us with increasing our church's engagement with society and social action and so forth? And that is the origin of what is now known as Jubilee Plus which is a national team rooted in New Frontiers related to all the different family of New Frontiers churches and um, we operate all over the country running conferences and the last conference actually was connected to Relational Mission in Cambridge, one or two of you might have been there. Uh, Mike and I co-hosted that event and I'm very grateful for the strong support we've had from the RM team so you could relay, relay that back to them, uh, Mike. And so. Um, I now work part-time for Jubilee Plus, we published some books, you may have seen um, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor and the Church for the Poor, I see they're downstairs um, on the bookstall, so somebody's uh, got them in, got those two books here which I co-authored with uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Natalie Williams, I'm still an elder in a local church, I gave up leading the church because there was too many other things I had to do, handed over to one of my colleagues uh, four years ago, and I've been asked to speak on the topic of a church for the poor. Why don't we just start with some economics? <clears throat> Ten years ago, in the financial crisis, something fundamental changed in our nation, and that's the sovereign national debt increased at an astronomical level. It's now um, more than four times what it was then as a result of the gigantic stress to our economy. The impact of that is a systematic attempt by government to reduce its spending in many different areas that affect um, needy people. Departments like Working Pensions and DCLG have had massive budget cuts uh, coming across them. This is not a political statement, this is an economic statement. And so the implication of that process, which we're in the early stages of, by the way, it's gonna roll out for the next two or three decades unless something fundamental changes. The implications of that is to reveal clearly that no longer can our nation and its citizens expect the welfare state to be the answer to all key human needs from birth to death. And people are beginning to face up to this reality. And the, the reason behind it is not so much politics, it's economics, it's actual hard-nosed economics. Our sovereign national debt has grown to unprecedented levels, changing the political and the social and the economic environment. And this presents huge challenges, and you could tell me what those challenges are from the things you're facing on the ground in your churches, and I could tell you Loads of stories I could tell you of conversations I've had even in the last week. Someone was telling me that the addiction support services in their particular county were being cut to virtually zero. They had a letter from one of the chief officers in the council to indicate that, and they were talking to me about what the churches were going to do. I've got a hundred stories I can tell you as I travel around the country of what people say to me. I've had conversations with chief executives of county councils and and boroughs and so forth, and uh, we see a similar picture emerging all around. It's a challenge, but from our point of view, it's an opportunity. Yeah. And you can bemoan the difficulties, um, or you can engage with them. And I take the second view, whatever I think about particular political decisions, which is really very secondary mm -hmm. to the much bigger issue, which is that this process creates a more divided society. Many people are doing well, we're still a rich nation. But increasing numbers of people are finding it harder to live viable in our country. And the support systems around them are less robust than they used to be. And so the gaps are beginning <coughs> to appear. Does that ring any bells? That's the broad picture. Prophetically, our team was approached by someone of significant prophetic stature and prophesied that these gaps would continue to appear and that us as a team, Jubilee Plus and others too, had a, a God-given calling to find ways to help the church increase its capacity to respond to issues such as refugee, asylum, housing, personal indebtedness, <coughs> lack of life skills and addictions issues and so on. And that's the journey that we've been on 
over the last few years. So we have strategic conversations with all sorts of people around the country. Give you an example of something we've done recently. Last year we launched a website. It's called R2C2, Refugee Resource Center for Churches. If you're interested in it, there's a red leaflet on the desk over there. You can take one of those or you can go on the Jubilee Plus website and you can find a link to it. And it is a comprehensive guide for churches as to how to engage with refugee issues and asylum issues. <coughs> give you more information on the website than you'll find in any other single place in the country. Now, we've, we've developed that in the last couple of years with some uh, knowledgeable and gifted partners. So we are doing lots of projects to increase capacity of churches, and you can ask me some more details about that later on. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but just to give you a broad brush idea of the things <coughs> we're doing. And the second book, A Church for the Poor, has reached many, many different parts of the churches. I was on the main stage of a large Methodist event recently on the basis of that book. Um, I was able to give the Archbishop of Canterbury his personal signed copy the other day at a meeting. Um, he was quite surprised because he'd just written a book, which, uh, uh, but anyway, I thought I'd give it to him. You know, the sort of things you do. So, there we go. Now, we'll just talk about the journey. My church is on the journey that you're interested in, which is how are we a church for the poor? What does it actually mean? I've written quite extensively about it in the second book, and that's not an advert for the book, but I'm actually drawing some of the material from the book into this seminar. So I want to just use these slides here as just a little bit of an introduction to some of the key things that I see on the journey that you and I know we are on to one degree or another. In terms of the starting point, I would say calling is very important. We don't just respond in a knee-jerk way to social needs around. That usually creates a rather disorganized response from churches, which usually doesn't persist over time. The things that sustain our engagement are, number one, biblical conviction. I'm not going to uh, make this point extensively. It's been made many, many times in many contexts. But uh, when Peter said to Paul, all that I ask you is that you remember the poor, Paul was very uh, quick to, to affirm that that was the very thing that he intended to do. In other words, wherever you plant a church in the Gentile world, as opposed to the Jewish world, Peter's world, but they did it anyway, make sure you don't forget the poor in that community. Basically, that's what Peter was saying at that context. Now, personal experience is also important. Some of us are here because things have happened in our own life, our own families, that have profoundly affected us and drawn us to the human need around us. That is a valid part of the way God leads us and should be um, underlined as important. And I say that because that will be significant for a few people here. Thirdly, community circumstances. What is going on in your community? This is very important. We live in diverse, different communities. Many people in RM will be in market towns and that sort of environment. Some of you will be in the city here in London. Some of you will be in international urban settings. I don't know where you come from. Some of you may come from villages. The community environments are fundamentally different. The ethnic mix is different. The social mix is different. The demographic is different. It so happens where my church is situated has a huge proportion of housing for the elderly. And it's been developing in our area for a number of local reasons. So we are prioritizing caring for the elderly. We're just starting a new project very shortly. And then there's prophetic leading. What has God said to your church or to you? Very, very important. There can be prophetic things that happen that guide us as to how we are going to engage in this narrative. Many years ago, we had a tragic death of a young child um, who was killed in the road of a family in the church, and then another tragic death of a sibling in that family. And those double, two deaths in that family led one of our uh, children's workers to seek God. And out of that tragic circumstance came the idea of a bereavement service for children. That's prophetic calling. That team this month is dealing with between 20 and 30 children in our community, all of whom have been referred by schools with whom we have a strategic partnership. A tragedy led to a prophetic calling that led to 
a ministry? What is the prophetic calling to you as a church, or perhaps even more widely in your region, or in your movement, but particularly to your church? We can't do everything. And I'm not trying to impose any guilt on anybody today. I want to motivate you with a sense of God's calling. There's some, some things happening in your community, some things God is saying to you prophetically that are the things to seize on. Because when God speaks prophetically, guess what? He'll resource what he calls you to do. We have a wide range of social projects running in our church, and as an elder, I'm responsible for all of them. And we've seen time and again, God resourcing in impossible ways things we've launched out to do because we knew it was the right thing to do. We'll come a bit more onto that later on. Now, one of the crucial questions, and forgive me for rushing on, you can see I'm just painting a big picture and then I'm going to invite your questions. Um, one of the big questions that we constantly face in our team is actually a different one from that. It's about culture. And it is commonly said that evangelical churches in this country are predominantly middle class. And it's commonly said that even in our own movement, that would generally be true. I'm not going to dispute that thesis, however you define middle class, but people feel it, they know what they mean when they say it. Now, if that is the case, then our churches may not be easily accessible to people who feel they're from different social backgrounds. Now, this can apply to age groups, this can apply to socioeconomic groups, and it can apply ethnically, and it can apply in other ways. And so one of the things we have to wrestle with, especially when we're dealing with poverty, um, is to work out well, how does the class factor play into this uh, situation. Now, I have co-authored the two books with a colleague called Natalie Williams. My background socially is middle class, straight through. Her background is Sink Council Estate in a southern town, no Christian heritage, no one ever went to university, most people ended up being uh, single parents in her wider social network and family and she came to Christ as a teenager. So we deliberately co-authored the book to give you two narratives. And if you read the two books, you'll see two narratives looking at the same issue from two different social backgrounds, two predominant social backgrounds that we need to deal with. And so I want to encourage you, if you feel you come from what people might call a working class background, you have got insights and awareness of culture that your church needs. If you can have that conversation well, it's going to be a benefit to your church. So this is a very big topic, but I want to just make the assertion that in any church, there is a main culture and lots of subcultures. It's a pretty obvious thing to say, but we don't often think about it. The main culture is what happens in your public meetings or in your social media, or in your midweek group structure, or in your alpha course, in your kind of central events. What happens? What, how do people behave? What's the expectations in that environment? And yet everybody who comes to your main meeting, for example, may not share all those cultural values. And they may feel slightly alienated, to take a very obvious and simple example that isn't related particularly to the topic I'm talking about today. Consider the number of groans and moans you get from young people and teenagers when they don't like the songs that are being sung because they're far too old-fashioned. And consider the groans and moans you get from the older people in the coffee time when they couldn't understand this modern funky song because the rhythm didn't work properly and there's far too much drums. Okay? Now that goes on in every church in one form or another. That's a representation of the tension between the main culture and the subcultures. We all have preferences and subcultural views about loads of different things. And we have to, if we're going to develop our church's reach, we have to consider who we're trying to reach and what cultural issues are going to help them <coughs> engage. And there are all sorts of different examples we could make. Can I just tell you a a funny story as an example. I was um, talking to someone who was leading a church in a very working class area, but he had a very middle class church member 
who really didn't like the instant coffee that was served at the end of the, of the meeting. And he came to the pastor one day and he said, I really think we need to have proper uh, filter coffee and, and, and you know, all the kind of uh, ground coffee and all that stuff. And the pastor wisely said, no. Because that sent a message to the immediate neighbors for whom that was not their culture. Now that's just a tiny little example, isn't it? And I'm not saying there's a right and wrong in that, by the way. I'm just saying that's a cultural observation. And so there are many cultural things that we need to think about. And so as we are developing churches that are for the poor and the wider sense of the word, we have to think, what things can we do to help people access church life better who come from a different social or economic background maybe just pure economics and some people in the church are very rich and some people in the church are very poor and that creates a lot of underground tension in terms of what is valued within the church that you just have to negotiate now this is a big topic but i raise it now because this is part of the journey paul's philosophy in 1 corinthians 9 was that he became all things to all men if by any means he can, he can reach as many as possible. Now that underlying principle of being flexible about your primary culture, not holding too closely to it, is the kind of principle that we need in churches. We all have a primary culture, I think things we prefer um, to do um, as we gather together and as we relate as community. But Paul basically said, I'm willing to sacrifice those things in order to reach people. That's quite profound. Some things may have to be sacrificed to reach people in different socioeconomic groups. Now, this, of course, applies to different racial groups and ethnic groups as well. That's not my main topic, but it's a parallel application you can easily make. This is making any sense. I'm just giving you some headlines here. You may want to talk about this a little bit later on. So if we're going to be a church for the poor, I propose we need at least four ingredients uh, for, for aspects of our church life functioning well. First of all, obviously, and no one really disputes this, uh, the outreach and practical care for people in need has to be robust and clear, well organized, compassionate, and appropriate to the need, whether it's a food bank or a debt advice uh, project, whether it's a housing project, uh, whether it's helping people with um, educational need, whether it's working with people recovering from addictions. We need to have projects, uh, not always projects, but generally projects that are effective to meet that need. And I guess in almost all of our churches here, we can say, well, our projects are X, Y, and Z. And um, that is a great starting point. And um, in the practical care, incidentally, um, a lot of church members coming to, for example, work in food banks, um, uh, come up against their own attitudes. And they have a challenge going on inside them. Uh, we wrote about this in the first book, The Myth of the Undeserving Poor. What we don't realize very often is the kind of attitudes to people that we have when they're far away and we just look at them from a distance. And as soon as they come close, it becomes very, very challenging. Have you ever not had that experience? So for example, a guy was talking to me recently from a military background. He was a tough soldier, hardened frontline soldier for many decades and served in different fields of active service. And he was a Christian, got involved in the church that I know about somewhere in the country. And um, he had a very clear idea of right and wrong and human responsibilities a lot of military people do. And then he got involved in the food bank. And he said to me the other day, he said, you know, my heart changed because I realized how <coughs> hard-hearted I was towards people who weren't able to stand on their own two feet because that's the only way we ever knew and understood. So there's quite a journey. And I have endless conversations with people about this journey as I travel, practical care. Second thing I think is important is what I call advocacy. The church's responsibility is actually to stand up for people. I'm not talking about 
being party political, which I'm not encouraging particularly. We're a non-party political organisation. None of our team have any formal party political affiliations. But I am talking about the fact that we need to speak up for people. For example, in our food bank in our own town, we have developed a good relationship with the Job Centre Plus. And we sometimes give them a narrative of what happens when they sanction people. They say, well, you sanctioned that person last week. We helped them this week because this happened to them because you sanctioned them. And these are the reasons why they didn't turn up to that interview because they live in a rural place and they couldn't afford the bus fare, whatever it happens to be. This is not aggressive, this is not hostile. This is telling the story, <coughs> holding people to account in public office for the responsibilities they have, but offering partnership at the same time, rather than passing the buck. We're not here to pass the buck, but there is a sense of advocacy. This can be on a local level, so one of the strategic opportunities of our churches nowadays is to be far more closely connected to local authorities than we ever were before, by the way. Um, so one of my colleagues who works managing our food bank, she was recently invited to a county-wide discussion at a senior level with county officers and some senior charities, we were the only church represented, um, to discuss how we minimise the impact of welfare reforms in our area. So her voice was welcomed into that forum. That's advocacy. They invited her and she had a lot of things to say based on experience and all the stats that we gather together. So I want to encourage you. You know, we, we, we're called to speak up for people. People who are struggling with asylum issues, people who are struggling with housing issues, whatever the issue might be, appropriately, sensitively, but clearly based on evidence and narrative and storytelling, it is a prophetic function of the church, I believe, and it's all part of being a church for the poor. But advocacy only really works when you're doing practical care first. What we don't want in the church is lots of smart addicts on their own internet platforms who are not connected to the reality. Excuse my vernacular. You know, I'm trying to be really clear here. Prophetic words in the church community come out of living experience and living knowledge and a heartfelt concern for people and their welfare rather than a sense of self-righteousness against society or the authorities, which we should not take on. It's not our job, it's not our heart as churches. And then evangelism. How do you evangelize people you're seeking to care? And so there are a number of different strategies and approaches, some much more upfront, some try and separate care and evangelism. That's a risky thing to do in the long term in terms of a biblical model of the church. Uh, but sometimes you have to find appropriate ways of sharing the gospel or praying for people depending on the project we can have some conversations about that later on if you want to um, and i've been involved in different methodologies and different discussions in this area because we don't want to be silent about christ just because somebody tells us that we can't say something or because we're scared of some disapproval on the other hand we don't want to manipulate people who are vulnerable and so you're living in that, that very marginal vulnerable area and you have to work out what's the Lord leading us to do. Can I just make a very simple observation here? One thing that often happens in churches is that social uh, caring people are, uh, are drawn to social action but they're not always the most gifted people at communicating with Christ. They want to do the work. Sometimes they are, which is great. And evangelistically gifted people are often not drawn to those social projects. They want to work with upcoming together people who they can really connect with and get them on their alpha course, if you see what I mean. I'm slightly caricaturing this, but not out of disrespect. I'm just trying to make a point. So one of the things that I think we discovered and which we advocate is try and get evangelistically gifted people connected with the poorest in the community. Would Jesus have done anything different? We know the answer to that question, but we need to do it. So we, in our church, have some evangelistically gifted people who we steer. I've been steering one in the last few uh, months to get more involved in the more marginalised people that we're dealing with. Um, he's very gifted. He knows something of the background from his own experience, came from a very deprived background, 
but has moved out of that now. So I've said, well, why don't you come back in that world? And why don't you help the next generation? Because you've got the great gift of communicating Christ. So this evangelism is important. And then obviously we need to disciple people as they come to Christ. And it can be very complex with some broken issues that we will find. Are you okay so far? Right. Uh, there's a lot of things coming really quickly. Um, but I, I wanted to give you a kind of overview of some of the things I think are really important. Now this next one, um, this, is, this is really interesting. So this is some research that I did, and I've oversimplified it. You can read a much more extended version of it in the second book. Um, what, what strategy do churches actually take if they're trying to reach more marginalized communities? Uh, these are four main ones. There are a few others I haven't mentioned here because of time, but I'm happy to comment on them if you want to <coughs> do that. Um, even this is a kind of from the evangelical point of view. First of all, we just say, we need to do social action, full stop. Now, some churches are in that paradigm and their leaders are in that paradigm, and the narrative they want to tell is, um, you know, we gave this amount of food to the food bank in our church and we tell that story to the church and that's like the end goal. Um, but then more and more people thinking, hang on a minute, that's not right. There must be more. And so the second category is where a lot of churches are at. Say, so, well, we do these social projects, but we really want to work out how to make them outreach orientated. So we can adopt some simple strategies, like, for example, the church leader who told me that uh, they run a language school in their particular town and they invite people in the language school with whom they form relationships to come to their carol service and they then come to Alpha and some of them have come to Christ. Well, that's a very, very simple example of an outreach strategy uh, with a relatively open people group coming to your church. But we all know this is quite, quite a challenge and the cultural issue comes in here, how are we going to integrate people into the church, the issue that I mentioned earlier on. Two other more radical strategies are being adopted by some people. One is multiple congregations. Now, this is not multiple congregations to get more of the same type of people in your church because your church is growing. This is multiple congregations to serve different social groups who, as yet, you can't integrate fully into your main congregation. Now, this creates a kind of philosophical issue. Um, that may concern you. I'm just describing a narrative of what some people do. So a friend of mine, for example, they have a main church and then he specializes in working with addicts and homeless, covering addicts, and they found the main meetings a bit difficult to negotiate. So he created a congregation for them. <coughs> and it is a church meeting. Preaching, worship, prayer, lots of socializing, Lots of tea and coffee. That's a very long part of their service, by the way. <laughs> Necessary in that context. And preaching Christ to them. And some of them become believers and some of them then join the other congregation. Some of them stay there. And at the same time, he's also got a, another congregation. He's starting on, on a deprived estate. So an estate congregation. Uh, and a, a congregation for those recovering from addictions, which he works with very intentionally, and the main church congregation. So there's a multiple congregational model. Here's another one from another part of the country where one church I know they had a very large influx of refugees from Eritrea who really didn't have that much English capacity, um, but they were seeking to follow Christ. And so they created, as an interim measure, an Eritrean congregation. Not necessarily a permanent uh, measure, but to try and incorporate them in the church community and the elders oversaw the Eritrean congregation. So you can have a multi congregational model, but obviously it has a risk that you have a divided community in the long run. So you just have to work out whether that's a good idea or not. Now, the other idea that is coming much more to the forefront at the moment, and an idea that our team is working on very specifically is church planting in deprived areas intentionally. And probably you're involved with this in some parts of RM already, perhaps here in London. And 
I believe this is a very, very important issue. Church planting thus far in the New Frontiers history has generally been going to new towns, targeting areas where you've got a, a welcoming social group that you can build on, uh, maybe students or uh, young professionals or a stable um, middle-class area. Um, uh, and this is a slightly more radical model which involves quite high risks because um, church planters generally don't um, identify to go to the most deprived area as the primary thing that, that they've been called to do because in, often they, they're guided otherwise by the context they're in and lots of other possibilities are put their way but I actually think this is a high <coughs> Now I was talking recently um, to Bishop Philip North, an Anglican bishop who heads up Church of England's uh, consideration of uh, what he calls a state evangelism. He's a bishop from the north of England, Bishop of Burnley, and he's coming to speak at our conference actually. Um, he spoke at New Wine last year and um, he said, well, the denominational churches are just retreating from these areas. They're closing down at an alarming rate, including the Church of England. So my immediate instinct is to think, what do we do? And so we're hoping to create in Jubilee Plus a national conversation about church planting in deprived areas. How do we resource it? What's the long-term approach? What's the leadership structure? What are the expectations? What do the finances need? So that's something that uh, you may want to just talk about. There's quite a few things that you might want to talk about. Just <laughs> this is the last one. I can see a sign of relief on some people's faces. I'm compressing an awful lot of material into a very short period of time. But since I've only got one shot, I'm going to give you as much as I possibly can. Okay, hoping that some of it is helpful to you. I do want time for questions. Okay, so you can't get away from the overwhelmingly central issue of capacity. Martin, it's all very well you're saying these things, but how on earth are we going to do that? Is the great crime that many people have. And so let's just reflect for a moment on the four key resources that we need. Let's talk about human resources. Now, most churches have a groundswell and a capacity of people to do practical things who are caring. That's usually a relatively strong resource in church. But one thing we need in this area is a slightly different gift. And I want to just put this in the context of a theological paradigm. In the New Testament, there are two types of leaders. There are elders and there are deacons. Whether you use the title elder or deacon is not the main point I want to make. It's the concept. You can call them something else. And many people in our movement don't particularly like using the term deacon. Some do, because it has some other connotation. What is a deacon? A deacon is someone who is a designated leader within the church, under the authority of the elders, who has an area of ministry and a leadership gift to organize that area. Note the last bit, a leadership gift. They may not be an elder, but they have a leadership capacity. The most critical thing we need in human resources is to find and develop the social action orientated <coughs> men and women in our churches who are gifted not just to do, but to develop, to organize, to manage uh, projects and outreach. And for me, my own church, to find those people is the crucial thing. I'm always looking for them. We've found quite a few. And that's the key that sets things going. Because the elders will often say, well, I can't do all this. It's not my calling. I've got the time. I've got a thousand other things. I've got to pastor the church. I've got to teach all these things. We've got to organize the worship and the alpha and everything else. Well, in the biblical model, it wasn't the elders who did all these things. 
We even see at the Jerusalem church, the apostles very quickly delegated to the seven a key responsibility. And it was the first ever food bank. There it is in the Jerusalem Sorry. church. Biblically defined as the daily distribution of food. Now, if that isn't a food bank, I don't know what is. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Luke says. Now, the men chosen had high caliber, lots of gifts, lots of maturity, and the ability to be leaders because they had a discontented group of widows who'd been overlooked to deal with. And it wasn't just counting out the loaves of bread that was given to them, it's dealing with them pastorally and humanly and loving them and integrating them into the community. That takes leadership. So they have to organize and lead and pastor. We need that human resource and we need to train those people. And that is a very urgent need. Secondly, financial resources. Another common issue. My bottom line statement is, if you know you're called to do something and God has called your church to do something, you can call on him for his provision with great, great confidence. And I have seen him do miracle after miracle after miracle in social action projects because I know as an elder, we are called to do this. But if you're just doing it because some, somebody in the church pressurized you to do something or, uh, or whatever, then you haven't got that conviction and resourcing may be an issue. Now obviously budgeting carefully, planning things centrally, strategically, trustees, elders, directors, all that's a very, very important part of the background. It needs to be carefully thought about. But my fundamental conviction is, is that as we prioritize God's heart and concern for the marginalized, He'll bless the church in other ways. Yeah. I've seen this happen so many times. And it's not that you're looking for results within that particular project, people coming to Christ, counting the numbers, counting the baptisms. That's important, but that's not the key thing. The key thing is God can bless you generically in the church. And one of the things that we've noticed in our church is people come to our church, even join our church on the basis of the social action we do, even though they've never been involved. And they never will be involved. They don't even really know what's going on. Strange, that's not. <laughs> but they give some money. <laughs> Finances is a key, and that requires faith. And that's where spiritual resources come in. Your eldership teams in your church have to have the capacity to take on responsibility for things that the church undertakes. So that's an issue for eldership. This is not a discussion about eldership here, but it is an issue and have to have faith and we also need to invest prayer in the things we're doing with vulnerable and marginalized people not just think of it in terms of action but think of it in terms of prayer for god to work miraculously finally um physical resources this is mostly about buildings Buildings is a critical issue. Many things you want to do require physical facilities. And for many of our churches, the greatest, one of the greatest limiting factors is we don't have the room, we don't have the place, we don't have a suitable venue. So if you ever come across that situation, can I encourage you to ask God to open up the way? Who knows what may happen? <clears throat> we reached a bit of a crisis in our own church some years ago where our building and our facility was um, fully used and our social action in, in, uh, uh, percentage of use of that was very small and we were struggling, we couldn't fit the food bank anywhere in very comfortably and things were, were, were a bit difficult. So we began to pray and really asked the Lord, we thought maybe we need to move. <coughs> Part of the vision was to develop social action. Then I went to the neighbours, the neighbouring site um, the site had previously been one being divided. It was a building company, their offices and their storerooms there. And I went to the managing director, who's a friend of mine, and said, by the way, we're just thinking we might modify our building, we might move, we're just looking around. And he looked me over the desk and he said, buy me out, I'm moving. Okay. I said, you're kidding? You're not on the market. He said, I am now. 
<laughs> he said, I've watched your church the last 20 years with my neighbors, and you always do what you say, and you always find the money from somewhere, and I don't know where you, I don't know where you find it from, but you always pay your bills. Okay. So I trust you. And we bought some And a lot of miracles in finding the money to do that. And so his offices are now our church offices, and his storage building is now our community projects building, mm-hmm. where the food bank that serves our whole town, 70,000 people, is situated. It's now a well-known building in the town. Previously, no one had heard of it, and now uh, hundreds of people come there regularly. And between the two buildings, we just built, incidentally, recently, with another financial miracle, a woodworking um, shed where we, we do mentoring and training woodworking skills, and uh, we built some raised beds and. Uh, we're doing a, a gardening project with some of our clients as well because we do a lot of life skills. That's another story which I'm going to later on. But you know, physical resources, big issue. God wants you to do something. You have to step out and look. And, who, and nowadays, councils are getting rid of buildings left, right, and centre, decommissioning them. Go and talk to. We talk to our councils to see what's on offer. Going, you know, we just go and see them. Anything you want to give us? <laughs> okay, so far we haven't uh, struck uh, gold on that one yet, but we never know. So you have to be ambitious because some of us live in areas like you do, Mike, of extremely high uh, pricing of property, and, and many people know that. Um, but God is, is better than those things. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you for listening. Just want to encourage you, really to encourage you. I hope that at least. One thing I've said will spark in you faith and aspiration to go to the next level. Um, however, uh, I'm going to um, do some Q and A. Is that okay, Mike? Yeah, that's lovely. Um, Can you repeat the question, just to... uh, Yes, yeah, so I need to repeat the question for the audio. Um, so, if anyone would like to ask a question, or you, you may just want to make a comment, uh, a perspective. That's fine as well. Um, if you're near the front, I'll, I'll give you the microphone, but it's on the lead. So if you're further back, I'll repeat the question. Thanks very much, Matthew. That's really, really helpful. Um, so I've got a question about uh, there's masses of need, as you were saying right at the beginning. You also made a comment about uh, the response by different churches in the town can be quite kind of, not quite sure what word you use, but uncoordinated. And I just, have you got some good examples? What's your view really about churches working together strategically <coughs> to meet a priority that they identify together in a town and what some of the uh, strengths and weaknesses of that approach might be? Uh, this is a very good question. And um, in general, we should look for partnerships with other churches, I would say. So I would take a positive view. Um, and some things lend themselves naturally to partnership, like street pastors, for example, yeah. which functions on a town city-wide basis. So we have a very vigorous street pastor <coughs> project in our town. We don't manage it, we don't need it, we contribute to it, that's fine. Um, what you want to be sure about is that the governance and the vision of that project is clear, and so consideration of how it's going to be run. Sometimes interchurch things are run very, very badly because no one's quite committed to the welfare of it in the long run. They're just short-term people coming in and out, and that puts you in a vulnerable position as a local church. You just need to make a value judgment on that. Um, but partnerships are good. Build them on relationships rather than on project management plan. Um, try and work out who the key people are and whether you can work with them and make sure that you can still have the freedom to share your faith in a way that other churches won't object to um, because that's an essential freedom for the well-being of your members in your church community. There's no right or wrong. Uh, some things obviously lend themselves to a town-wide approach and you benefit from partnering with others. But some interchurch partnerships can be very clunky and cumbersome and cause a great deal of stress in your church because your members take different views and then you have to negotiate their different views about what's going on. Some things that think it's great and other people tend to pull out. So uh, you just have to be careful. So those are a few general comments. Anything else would be specific to a particular context. I didn't mention those before, but not because they're not important. I was just approaching it from the kind of local church upwards narrative. Thank you. Other comments or questions? This lady here, could you just? Uh, what does an inclusive Sunday gathering look like? 
What does an inclusive Sunday congregation look like if you're able to include people? It depends who you want to include. So the question is, um, you've got your main culture and you've got your subcultures, and I mentioned earlier on, do you remember that? Um, let me just go back to that slide. Um, and the question we always have to ask is, what are the subcultures that we are actually dealing with in our particular church? So an inclusive meeting would be uh, accessible in terms of understandability, and would have a length that people can tolerate, and would have a social environment that that most, most if not all people could enter into from different backgrounds. Um, so these are rather general comments because you have to anchor it in your community. There isn't an actually a right or a wrong answer to this. Um, so people have reflected on, for example, preaching styles. Um, uh, an important question is to what extent preaching style is based on an, um, analytical, theoretical, conceptual content of theology and to what extent it's based on narrative, and also to what extent it's based on the use of visuals. So all these issues are a key part of communication. Um, I'm afraid that unless we specify exactly who we talk about, it's difficult to- I was to just thinking, because you commented that you said the UK church is very middle class, yeah. and if you were that, if the UK church was to change, you know, yeah. Well, I think that what, what I imagine seeing is um, some churches that become much more sensitive to the social groups on their periphery and draw them in. So that would be one thing that I'd like to see. And I think what I'd also like to see is that some churches are just planted in more uh, deprived areas and form their own culture. If you see what I mean, I think both things are good. Um, and some churches may function in multi uh, congregational model, which may be necessary for linguistic or practical reasons for a time. But if I could just give you an illustration from our own town. So our church, um, historically largely middle class, but not entirely, congregation, um, largely white, uh, and with a very big um, age demographic, up to the 90s, right across the spectrum. Um, but we planted another church in our own town many years ago in the more deprived area very, very intentionally. So that church is now our sister church and has a different, very different feeling on, on a Sunday morning because of the people who are attending. So you've got there two different things happening. One is the flexibility of a larger church, just to be a bit more sensitive, and the other is planting churches into a different demographic and representing that demographic as the primary um, culture. So if I visit that other church, uh, which I did the other day to preach, some of the cultural things they do are not the natural things that I would do. But that doesn't matter, because I'm visiting them. So, uh, this lady, would you like to add something? Well, would you tell us what the different things are? Well, yes, I can tell you a few differences. Um, one is, for example, <laughs> the view of timekeeping. <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. Um, you see, the t timekeeping is a matter of culture. And I remember recently being in East Africa and um, wrestling with a few timekeeping issues. And one of my friends said to me, uh, you know, you Europeans, you know, you have the clocks, but we have the time. Yes. <laughs> um, so you, we don't realise how fixed our views of timekeeping are in, in culture. Uh, personally, I like good timekeeping, so I'm not advocating uh, something different from personal preference. But if you are dealing with people who have a more a relaxed view of timekeeping or a more chaotic personal lifestyle, or they have transport difficulties because they're poor and they come by bus. Yeah. Um, or in our particular context, we have the rural spaces <coughs> to people are coming in from villages. 
um, could be all sorts of things in the inner city that would apply, um, then you have to just think uh, to what extent you disapprove of people who come in late. So that's one issue. Uh, the other thing is the style of socialising. So I remember my colleague Natalie Williams, who, who wrote in one of our books a very interesting story. She, when she, as a, as a very working class girl, joined a middle class church in Hastings, uh, she remembers the first time she was invited to dinner. And it caused her a great deal of anxiety because she didn't know what that meant. Because her family never went to dinner anywhere in the evening. You either went to the pub <coughs> or you watched the telly. Um, and then when she got to this dinner appointment, they said very unnervingly to her, you go first, help yourself. She found that complete. She'd never seen anyone do that before because people just dived in. Um, now in a very, it's a very simple example. And these things are more nuanced than that in most cases. They're not as absolute and black and white as that example gives. But the style of socializing is really important. And hospitality, socializing in public, in the church. Um, I gave a rather small example about the style of coffee. That's just you know, semi-humorous. It's not that, you know, but it applies in some cases. But um, people have different levels of socialization. Some people find groups very difficult. So another good example is the alpha model of evangelism depends on people having the capacity to sit in a group, look at other people, and know that there are people in the group who know an awful lot more than them, who are the group leaders, and express their opinions about things that they're not really keen to talk about very much, certainly not to those people. Um, that requires quite a few social skills. If you can do it, great. I like it, personally. So, one church I know, they, they use Alpha, but they tend to use it one-to-one -one or go to people's homes rather than invite them out to an event because they wouldn't come. Or they come once and never come again. Another thing is to do with language, so if people don't have good English or there is a population of a second language group, can, can you represent that language in public in terms of translation, interpretation, uh, or do you have people doing that at the back of the meeting, or do you just ignore it because you think everyone speaks English? Um, there are numerous examples. How long <coughs> this is really important. So a friend of mine came to speak at our church the other day, he's a big national leader, and he said, how long is your meeting and how long do you want to speak for? And I said, I'd like to speak for about 35, 40 minutes. He said, oh, that's not very long. I was at um, one of the big uh, black majority churches uh, last week and the meeting was three hours, it was great. <laughs> so, culture, perception of time. Is there a right or a wrong? Not that I can find in the Bible. Um, does it matter? It matters a heck of a lot. People feel very keenly about these things. Just care to, you care to, what's the view on culture and how you, how, how you draw some, some, some of this stuff into the cultures that would be involved in change? It's not something that is that's a, that's a really big question, I guess. It is a big question. But uh, I just wondering that within the, the things that you're talking about, how can you Well, I think that um, one of the things that changes culture most quickly in churches is having, giving influence to people who are in the subcultures. Mm -hmm. yeah. Giving them a voice that you listen to. So it's either going and consulting them you know, for example, if you had a group of, shall we say, Bulgarian uh, agricultural workers and trying to start coming to your church, to find somebody there to say, can we just talk to you about what the process means to your people? They're coming in, their English isn't very good, they're in another country, for example. 
or you can do it more formally if people are well established in church, members with leadership capacities to raise up that leadership from a different uh, cultural background and give them a voice. Now I've done this with the Jubilee Plus with my colleague Matthew by consciously giving her influence because she sees things differently from the way I see them in other teams. And that enriches our ministry. That's not a local church example. And the most strategic thing of all is to have in your senior leadership, eldership, or deacons, or trustees, or, or some other equivalent, um, people representing those subcultures who have a leadership function in the church. So for example, you have a black and white church, and you've got about 50% white, 50% black in the church, hypothetically. You want black and white representatives in the eldership, if possible, for example. And so cultural change has to be led from the top. It, almost mm. never works from the bottom mm. because the leaders have to really believe that something needs to change because they're the only ones who can really make it happen. But they won't necessarily know what to do until they give a voice to the people who do know better than them. So it's a combination of authority of leaders and the cultural insight of church members. These are broad brush answers, but I hope you can interpret them in a meaningful way. That would apply in all sorts of different ways depending on the context. Uh, the lady, then, sorry, and then this gentleman in the Yeah. yeah. Um, I, we've talked a lot about cultural differences and how to perhaps make uh, sanity things appropriate for everyone, but I would be interested to hear what your definition is of the poor. Um, yes, I can do that. A definition of the yeah. poor. Yeah, okay. Well, yes. Let's go for this really quickly. <laughs> so, in economic terms, <coughs> governments, uh, in general, have preferred to take a direct economic measure. And the economic measure that's often been used by governments and other researchers and organisations is 60% of median income. Median income means the middle income, if you line everybody up in a row, the middle person, Joe Bloggs or Josephine Bloggs, who's in the middle, uh, in the country, is with millionaires at one end and asylum seekers on the other, in terms of economics, that person in the middle. If you've got 60% of the income of that Joe or Josephine Bloggs in the middle, you're okay if you're below 60% of your poor. So that's a purely economic definition. I'm not very keen on that definition. Um, the reason is that it's arbitrary because it takes very little account of particular needs of households and geographical location and housing costs and other things. It's a huge variable in our country. Now, if you buy a copy of this book, which you can buy downstairs for a bargain price of eight fifty, it's nine ninety nine on Amazon, by the way. So, <laughs> I'm not a salesman. <laughs> well, I might have been. Um, if you go, I can't actually uh, have got enough hands to look into the book now. But what we, have, what I've done in, in one of the early chapters there is done an economic, uh, done a social analysis of poverty in the UK, and I've made the following points, and I'm summarising it. I'd love you to read it to get a full answer. First of all, we have to distinguish between absolute poverty and relative poverty. We have to accept that absolute poverty is a top priority for the church wherever it appears in the world, and it very rarely appears in the Western world. It does, but it's very, very small in America. And our concern for the developing world and absolute poverty is a top priority. We assume that. But that does not give us an excuse for ignoring the relative poverty on our doorstep. It's a both-and situation. And relative poverty, I would define, rather than by a strict economic criteria such as the one I've mentioned, by the ability to live viably in a given society. The ability to live viably in a given society. Now there's been a very um, extensive, the biggest uh, analysis of poverty ever done in our country is by, has been by an academic consortium of different universities which produced four reports, uh, the Poverty and Social Ex Exclusion Reports, the latest one of which came out in 2012. And what they do as a measure is they take 
public opinion survey of what it means to live viably in any society. And the latest survey suggested the following criteria, which I'll read to you. And they suggested if three or four of these are not possible, then the person is moving into deprivation. If I just read this to you, this is another way of looking at it. And by the way, this takes into consideration the variations in geography and economics, whereas the other measure doesn't. And so living viably depends on where you are. Some, many people in London know perfectly well living viably in London is a totally different proposition from living viably in central Glasgow in terms of the economic cost. Right. So the most recent survey of the biggest investigation into this uh, topic, um, 2012, from a very extensive survey of the general public said that the general public really believe that the following things are needed to live viably. Um, recommended dental treatments, this is in no order of importance necessarily, a waterproof coat, the ability to attend weddings and funerals, that's just to attend, meat, fish or vegetarian equivalent every other day, curtains or window blinds, household contents insurance, enough money to keep your home in a decent state of decoration, a hobby, appropriate clothes for job interviews, table and chairs for the family to eat, taking part in some exercise activity, two pairs of shoes, regular savings of 20 pounds a month, regular payment to a pension, heating to keep your home adequately warm, damp free home, two meals a day, ability to visit friends or family when they're in hospital, replace broken electrical goods, fresh fruits and vegetables, and being able to celebrate special occasions. That's, that's the general public's view. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. Now I went there through that list and I thought, <coughs> What would I feel if three or more of those things were impossible? If it wasn't possible for me to save 20 pounds a month, if I wasn't able to attend weddings and funerals, that's due to transport probably, transport costs. And so I missed the funeral of my granddad because I can't afford to go there. Or if I can't afford the heating bill and I'm cutting down on heating and the house is very cold, etc. So my answer to the question is, our aspiration is that everybody should be able to live viably in our society. The level of viability is subjectively, culturally determined. It cannot be an absolute measure of it. And it's a very reasonable definition because that was the aspiration of the economic and social provisions of the Law of Moses. That, that every Israelite should be provided for if you actually study the law of Moses at a basic level. Um, for a longer answer, you'd have to look at the book, I think it's chapter two, where I've done a detailed analysis of this question. One more? One more? One more? Mike's okay. looking at me as the time's good. We're beyond 12, but this is such an interesting subject. We'll have one more question. This gentleman here, this will be the last question. Uh, is there anything you've specifically to like um, this is a very key question. So, um, in our local church situation, where we have leadership and discipleship training for younger people, whatever, it has a number of different forms. I always do a session on, like, the social vision of Christianity. Uh, so we teach into that. Um, secondly, we're integrating it into leadership training programs in different parts of New Frontiers which younger people will access. So for example, in two weeks' time, my colleague Natalie will speak in Sheffield where I look after the leadership training. She'll do a whole day on this issue that always has an effect on people. Um, and thirdly, we're trying to um, develop a really good input into New Day. and other things too, but those are So I think in the local church level, and let me conclude by saying this, the default risk for the younger generation in our churches, not just the younger generation, 
about the younger generation is to make a subliminal assumption that Christianity is the wonderful religion of salvation which they experience and enjoy. That church life is good because the previous generation made it good and they enjoyed the blessings of it. And that developing a secure and prosperous life and career advancement and family advancement are the number one goals in life. In other words, we can buy into a watered-down version of the materialistic dream that everyone lives for. And one thing that we are saying to the is we can't afford to do that. The stakes are far too high. The younger generation must feel the heart of God. Let me just conclude with a personal story. Um, I have three daughters, they're all adults, and my wife and I had an unspoken dream for our children, <coughs> which was that <coughs> they would work in the developing world, all of them, three girls, <coughs> at least three. And the first one uh, went to India to Mumbai, the gap year. The second one, after getting married, suddenly left her teaching job and went to work in an orphan village in South Africa, a Christian village associated with uh, my And the third one trained as a midwife, and I sat down with her one day and I said to her, now, where do you want to do your elective? Thinking that if she said wedding, it wouldn't be a thrill. She said, well, Dad, maybe it might be abroad. I said, should I make a few inquiries? <laughs> and it turned out to be Kenya. So she did an elective in Kenya. She saw what it means for women. To face such difficulties at the time of childbirth. Some women never reached the hospital because they could only go on foot. She saw it. I want our younger generation to see where this is. Not to, this hasn't produced guilt in me. Um, guilt is no weapon in our favour. But experience and thankfulness and the willingness to invest your life is so precious. That's what we're about Jubilee Plus, and we want our churches to do it, we want our young people to do it. And uh, that's why I'm willing to travel the country and give seminars wherever I'm invited. Um, because it's such a great opportunity, it's such a great challenge. It's a Joseph moment, and we need to rise <coughs> to that challenge. And my final comment if you're interested in finding out more about us, you have an invitation on your chair to our next conference, which happens to be in London here. First time ever at Everyday Church with Phil Moore, who'd be co-hosting with me. If you're interested in finding out more, there's some booklets over there. But I have finished.